So that'll be one of our texts for this morning, Matthew 27, verse 35. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And the other uh, passage that I'd like to also bring in this morning is Mark 15, verses 24 to 39. Mark 15, verses 24 to 39. And I'll just read the 39th verse. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out, and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, I first spoke on this sort of topic. My very first Easter message was back in 1992. And it has always been one of my favorite subject areas to speak upon, Christ crucified. I'm often intrigued by the inclusion of supposedly minor characters in the Bible, characters who are mentioned perhaps only once or twice in all of Scripture. And yet the more I study the Bible, the more I realize that God the Holy Spirit has included them for a very important reason. And so it is my hope and prayer this morning that with God's grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he might reveal that importance to us about these so-called minor characters as we examine one such character, and that is, of course, the Roman soldier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 39, better known as the centurion. Now, who was this centurion, and why was he even mentioned? What can we as Christians or non-Christians learn from his example in Scripture? Now, most historical accounts will tell us that in the ancient Roman army, there were 6,000 men to a legion with six tribunes. Each tribune was in command of a cohort of a thousand men. And each of these divisions or cohorts had ten centurions. And each centurion was in charge of a hundred soldiers. And though these centurions may have had different ranks or seniority, there was always one elite division called the Praetorium Guard. 
And that's the one that's mentioned here when Jesus was being tried. Its original design was to guard the emperors as organized by Caesar Augustus. And so their duties, by and large, involved guarding the emperor or his governors and executing their direct orders. We see this word praetorium mentioned only once in Scripture, and that is in Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called praetorium, and they called together the whole band. Now, the Praetorium Guard were select troops, the very best and the most trustworthy, and consequently extremely well paid. They were expected to carry out their orders quickly and completely, otherwise they would pay with their lives. And Sometimes these centurions might be given special duties, such as guarding prisoners and subversives. And they may often have been given the task of crucifying convicted criminals. And so as we focus our attention back again to the centurion in Mark 15.39, we have ample reason to believe that he may in fact have been part of this elite guard called the Praetorium Guard. And so we find him there standing by the cross of Jesus. His orders were to make sure that the crucifixion was carried out as commanded by the governor Pontius Pilate. It was his responsibility to see that his soldiers did exactly what they had been commanded to do, to crucify our Lord. The centurion was there under the direct orders of Pontius Pilate. Now, we must remember that this centurion was a veteran soldier. He had often tasted battle and had seen the fields run red with blood. After all, that is how he had gotten to be a centurion. He had been promoted from the ranks because of his meritorious service to Rome. It had perhaps taken him many years and many battles as a soldier to earn his position. Crucifixion to him was a routine part of his job, as it was to many a Roman soldier. He, in fact, after all these years, had grown quite callous to this whole routine. And if we turn back to Mark 15, 24, we get a glimpse of his routineness and callousness of duty. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Imagine the cruelty, the greed, and the callousness of these hardened Roman soldiers. A man, an innocent man, hung bleeding and dying in agony above them, put there by their own physical hands, and they are totally oblivious to his suffering. They gambled for his clothes. They were passing the time away because they had to stay there until all who were crucified had died. 
Again, if we go back to Mark's account in chapter 15, verses 15 to 20, we are aghast at the torture, the torment, and the ridicule leveled at the Son of God by the soldiers. After our Lord had been declared innocent of all charges by Pilate, he was then scourged, lashed 39 times, then mocked and ridiculed by his executioners before being led to the hill called Calvary for crucifixion. So Pilate, willing to contend the people, released Barabbas onto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. To be scourged by the Romans was a most cruel and inhumane form of punishment. The law required a maximum of 40 lashes for the convicted criminal, but 39 was usually the number given. For the convicted criminals, that is, not for the innocent. The Roman lash was the most dreaded form of punishment. Instead of the usual leather straps with knots tied at the ends, the Roman scourge was weighted with pieces of sharp bones and metal so that the skin would be marred and ripped apart and the victim would carry its scars to his grave. In verse 16 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, we see our blessed Savior standing in the hall called Praetorium. It was the judgment hall, the Holy One of Israel, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, and who had power even now to summon at a moment's notice, legions of holy angels to do battle stood there in derision without uttering a single word. The soldiers called their whole band together. They were going to have some fun, and so they clothed our Savior in purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and began to mockingly salute him, Hail! king of the Jews, and they smote him on the head with a reed. And after spitting upon him, they bowed their knees and worshipped him. Well, dearly beloved, does not this grieve our soul and break our heart that our sins have caused the Son of God such sorrow and pain? It was for us he suffered thus at the hands of cruel men, it was for us he would face God's wrath later on the cross so that we might go free. Every mark of dark dishonor, writes the hymn writer, was heaped upon the thorn-crowned brow 
On that cross, alone forsaken, where no pitying eye was found, did even God forsake thee and hide his face from thy deep need? And when the soldiers had had their fun, when they had gotten bored of their little game, they took off the purple cloak from him and put back on him his own clothes, and then they led him out to be crucified. Such was the callousness of these Roman soldiers. Sin had worked its way so deeply into the souls of these <coughs> men that their consciences were no longer able to speak to them. Such were the men over whom the centurion had command. And although he is not specifically mentioned here by name, I believe he was present during this abominable display of mockery. He had witnessed the despicable behavior and deportment of his own soldiers towards this innocent man, this Jesus of Nazareth. For I believe he knew full well Jesus to be innocent, because Pilate had openly shouted to the people in Luke 23, 14 to 15, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accused him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. And I'm sure that through all of this, certain things stuck out in the centurion's mind. He opened not his mouth in protest. He returned no insults or curses to his tormentors. Neither did he resist their cruel antics. He did not even plead for mercy. What kind of man was this? Then we come to the next scene, the scene of the crucifixion where the centurion is a guard. His eyes seem irresistibly drawn to the eyes of Jesus. There had been a stark contrast between the reaction of the two thieves who were being crucified and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as those long, sharp iron nails penetrated the bones and the flesh of our Savior's hands and feet, he did not cry out, no, no, stop, but rather with compassion and tears in his eyes, he cried out to heaven above, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke twenty three twenty four. That was the third hour, or nine o'clock in the morning. The centurion began to think, who was his father? Wasn't his father Joseph the carpenter? And wasn't he already dead? Who was this father that Jesus was crying out to? And why was he not calling out for help or for mercy? Why was he calling for forgiveness to those who heaped upon him such cruelty? And the thoughts began to surge like sea waves in a raging ocean storm. This was all too strange. Why would Pilate have had him scourged and then crucified if he had found him innocent of all his charges. 
This is contrary to Roman law. Even Herod returned this man, Jesus, to Pilate after finding that there was no fault in him worthy of his death. He was innocent, and yet he had been sentenced to death. Why? And as the centurion took his place at the foot of the cross, his mind began to observe the most incredible events that were ever to take place on this earth. As he stood below the one who claimed to be the Son of God, the centurion was able to observe more closely, almost as though he himself were the one on the cross, the ridicule, the mockery, and the biting insults hurled at this dying Jesus. And he found it most strange that all the cursing, all the scorn, all the mockery was directed at Jesus and not at the two guilty thieves and murderers on the crosses beside him. The centurion also began to notice the divided camp at the cross. Those whose hearts had been convicted and touched with compassion and those who continued to curse him and pour ridicule. But it was the mockers, the scoffers, which stood out. In the early hours of the crucifixion, he heard the passers-by railing upon him, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Then the chief priest mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Then the centurion heard his own soldiers mocking Jesus, saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. While this was taking place, he heard a most incredible conversation on the crosses above him between the two malefactors and Jesus. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Again, the question of innocence and justice was brought up. Jesus was just. Jesus was just. Yet he was condemned for his innocence. But what a strange promise Jesus made to one of the thieves. Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Singular, not unto you, plural. Jesus made the promise just to the one thief, not to both thieves, just to the one. Yet both were dying. Both were going through death's door, but only one was given the promise. Why? How strange this all was. The cross of Jesus even separated the two dying thieves. As the centurion continued to ponder all these sayings in his heart, his mind was again drawn to another conversation. This time it was between Jesus 
and his earthly mother Mary, and between Jesus and his disciple John. Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. It was as though Jesus were making the last earthly provisions for those whom he loved. He was making provision for the woman, his earthly mother, by giving her to that one called John. And he was charging John with the responsibility of her earthly care. How bizarre all of this seemed to the centurion. No sooner had the centurion gathered these thoughts together when suddenly at the sixth hour or twelve o'clock noon, darkness came over the whole land. It became pitch black. People began to panic. Why, never before had such a thing occurred. It was twelve noon, the brightest time of day, and yet it was pitch black out. No one could move. No one could leave. It was so dark, no one could find his way about. Everything was absolutely still and quiet. So quiet that one could hear a pin drop, as the expression goes. Then, without warning, there came a horrifying cry from above. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That cry startled all the onlookers. It sent a chill up through the very soul of the centurion, for it did indeed seem as though God had forsaken this earth. But which God? None of the Roman gods or deities could be responsible for this kind of darkness. Though they were many and had many spheres of influences, there were none who had brought about this kind of darkness. Suddenly, a frightening thought seized the centurion. None of Romans' pagan gods was responsible for this. Neither could they help him. Moments later, his thoughts were again interrupted by another statement from the cross about, above, I thirst. And so by now, someone had lit a lantern or a torch and reached out for a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and gave it to Jesus. The centurion carefully watched to see what the dying Jesus would do. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and died. Again, Jesus spoke to his father, something about being finished. What was finished? It was as though Jesus, this Jesus, had a job or a mission. What was it? It was then at the foot of the cross that the Spirit of God began to work his work of grace in the heart of this centurion. As he looked up at the blood-drenched cross of Jesus, his heart was pierced at the thought that there hung an innocent man, a just man, 
slain by wicked hands, a man who claimed to be not of this world, a man who claimed to be the very Son of God, a man instead of inciting rebellion and insurrection against the state preached repentance and forgiveness and the coming kingdom of God. This man, Jesus, was different from the others. He was without fault. He seemed to speak with authority. He made promises to people that no one else could, spiritual promises. He seemed to know things that no one else knew. He even made a promise to the dying thief on the cross beside him. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How could he have made that promise and hoped to keep it unless, unless he could really deliver it? Unless he was really the son of God. There were others besides the centurion that day who watched these things and others who saw the veil of the temple rent in twain. Still others witnessed the earthquakes and the opening of the graves days after Jesus' resurrection. They too feared and confessed as the centurion. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Yes, I like this passage with the centurion. I like it because it shows the tremendous grace of God. God, who is able to see the heart of man and knows his every thought, was able to take this sin-hardened, ruined Roman soldier, break him down, bring him to the foot of the cross, and convict him of his sins and enable him to say with repentance and conviction that Jesus was truly the Son of God. Well, what does this account mean to us as Christians? Well, first and foremost, there is great hope and encouragement for all of us as Christians. There is hope for us that even our loved ones, those who have lost their way, or those who have hardened their hearts against the Son of God, those who have caused them pain and have continually scoffed at him and cursed him, can still, by the grace of God, come to him even today by the way of the cross. But by the cross, they must still come. They must still gaze up at the one who alone paid the penalty for our sins, who died, was buried, and after the third day was again raised for our justification. The proof is irrefutable. There are many other supernatural events authenticating Christ's death and resurrection. The testimony of angels, the great earthquake, the tearing in twain of the temple veil, thus signifying that God had now received the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the people. In addition, there was the opening of the graves and the resurrection of many saints after our Savior's resurrection, and so on. There was ample evidence for his death, burial, and resurrection, and all of these things have been recorded for our benefit so that, as John writes in 20, verse 31, ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing ye might have life through his name. But now before I step down from this platform, as always, I must ask you some questions. Do you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him to be the very Son of God who came down from heaven's glory to this sin-ruined earth for the sole and express purpose of redeeming your precious soul and my precious soul? Have you ever repented of your sins and surrendered your life to him? Have you ever made a conscientious decision to let him rule in your heart and mind? Knowing who he is and what he has done is not good enough. We cannot have him as Savior and reject him as Lord. He himself warned us in Matthew 7, 21, 23 about that day when it is time to enter the kingdom of heaven that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen carefully to his words. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Perhaps there is some education or training that is getting in your way. Well, I plead with you, friend, set aside your pride, set aside your intellectual arguments, which are built upon premises of sand, and trust God to save you today. Or perhaps life has been cruel to you. Perhaps you are like that thief on the cross beside Jesus who had no hope, whose life was quickly coming to an end, who could works for others? Then like that thief, trust Christ today with your soul, and Christ will turn to you and say as he did to that thief on the cross, that should you die today, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Oh, I pray, receive him while there is still yet time. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee so much for the gift of Easter, the day that our Savior rose from the grave. We thank Thee that He was crucified as our sacrifice, that He died, was buried, and after the third day rose victoriously from the grave. And today he is seated on thy right hand as our high priest interceding on our behalf. And Father, we're thankful that he is still saving all who will come to him by faith. For we are reminded in thy word that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that all of this is made possible. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together round his table next Lord's Day. For we do ask of thee all these things in his lovely 
and precious name. Amen.